Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 48. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Vital. And we once again have Dr. Lauren Angelo with us because we're going to continue talking about some of those over-the-counter recommendations on common cold, nasal congestion, and cough products. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Thank you again. So, Dr. Angelo, when we see a patient who's presenting to uh, a pharmacy with symptoms of nasal congestion, what are some of the questions that should immediately come to our mind before we're recommending over-the-counter product therapy? First and foremost, it's important to figure out what's causing the congestion. It can be a variety of things. The common cold, obviously, is the first thing we might think about, but could it also be the flu? Or what about allergies, which we'll talk about in a little bit? Or even bacterial sinusitis, if the condition has been going on for some time. Pregnancy is another option that can cause congestion, so we'd want to be careful in that regard. And of course, you know, depending on, you know, are we trying to treat the symptoms or uh, in the case of allergy, treat the cause, like our treatment can vary based on what the presumed causative, you know, reason is for the congestion in the first place. It sure will. So if we can prevent it, let's do that. But if not, we'll be treating the symptoms. So as always, one of the first things to look at is, you know, who are the patients that should not be referred for self-care? Who are the ones that may actually benefit from going and seeing a provider for a workup? And so again, refer patients out to, you know, their provider for if they have nasal congestion due to the common cold and they, if they have a fever above 101.5 Fahrenheit, if they complain of chest pain or shortness of breath, symptoms that worsen despite treatment if they continue to progress more and more and more, if you notice a chronic cardiopulmonary disease, so again, if they've already got asthma or COPD or even uh, congestive heart failure or CHF, again, they're going to be more compromised. If they're immunosuppressed, if they're infants less than nine months old, or frail patients of advanced ages. In these cases, it, it's best to not to not even mess around with trying to self-treat, but to go ahead and refer back to primary care or a EMT or something like that to get it worked up. And of course, use your own judgment too. So if someone has mild congestion that happens to have mild COPD, it doesn't mean that you always have to refer them. But if you think that they have a lot of comorbidities that would predispose them to a bad outcome if it's actually influenza, then they probably do need to see a healthcare provider. So just like discussed during the last episode as well, you know, we're talking about our pediatric patients too, the recommendation on the -the over-the-counter Uh, medications for nasal congestion is still the same. The age limit is four, so they're not recommending to be using these products in those patients. However, some of the non-farm stuff, such as, you know, positioning them upright, using the humidifiers and vaporizers, um, using the bulb syringes to clean out their congestions, and then maybe using nasal sprays or drops to um, clean up the congestion could be very effective as well. And so if we're not dealing with all the patients Dr. Schumann mentioned or our children under the age of four, we do have some options which can be systemic or topical. So it's important to work with the patient to to figure out what their preference might be. Oftentimes we're looking at what we call decongestants. And so those are going to have vasoconstrictive properties. And those will help uh, constrict the blood vessels and those decrease vessel engorgement. And so it helps the patient symptomatically with the congestion he or she might be experiencing. 
And, you know, like you said, we can deliver these decongestants either systemically in the form of typically tablet, or we can give it as a topical product. The systemic products come in two varieties. One is pseudoephedrine. The typical brand name for that is Sudafed, or phenylephrine. The typical brand name is Sudafed PE. And one of the problems here is that this becomes very difficult for consumers who aren't well-versed on these drug products because they see a similar brand name, they see generic names that kind of look a little bit similar, they have, you know, a similar property to them, but from the medical side, they're very different, especially in terms of how the government views the uh, dispensing of these products. Yeah, so the Combat Methamphetamine Act of 2005 ended up leading to sales restrictions for the pseudoephedrine products. And so as a result, the manufacturer said, okay, well, are we going to, you know, lose some of our exposure on the shelf? So they came up with a line extension for things like Sudafed PE, which is going to be the, the phenylephrine form of it. So a lot of times, one of the, now one of the first clues you know as to whether or not it's phenylephrine or not is if you can buy it off the shelf, then generally it's going to be the phenylephrine form. But if you need that little card to be able to go get it from the pharmacy, that's usually a clue that it's going to be your pseudoephedrine product. Phenylephrine's been around for a long time. I think we hadn't been using it because it's just not as effective as pseudoephedrine. Um, but now it's back on the shelves, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things is that you're correct, Dr. Angela. Pseudoephedrine is a lot better absorbed, about 90% bioavailability versus 38%. And from the, a lot of the data, it seems to have better efficacy than the phenylephrine. It really technically is the preferred agent as long as the individual has that identification, legal identification, and can meet the age requirements set by the state. So, for example, in Illinois, have to be 18 years old and show that proof of ID to be able to obtain uh, pseudoephedrine products. And besides the age limitation, there is a milligram limitation on how much you can buy per month as well. This is basically uh, put in place uh, to prevent people from breaking bad. So, Dr. Angelo, given that it appears to have less efficacy, what kind of data do we have, more modern data, to either support or refute its use in clinical practice? Sure. So, it looks like a lot of activity has been comparing phenylephrine to pseudoephedrine, given that we have these two options available, and we're torn as pharmacists as to um, what to do with these patients sometimes. And so, a recent study uh, that was published um, found that patients receiving seven days' worth of either phenylephrine at doses up to 40 milligrams every four hours, which, mind you, is four times the amount we'd be recommending, 10 milligrams usually for patients. But at that four times the dose, it had no significant change in the patient's self-reported nasal congestion. And that was interesting because that was a new way of looking at it. In the previous studies, which were done way back in the 1960s, they had looked at something called nasal airway resistance. And so they would actually do this measurement of this number and whether or not there was that change in airway resistance that meant the drug was effective. And so instead now they said, why don't we actually look at how patients feel about how they're doing? So they looked at these, called them these nasal congestion scores. And so based upon those scores, they really didn't notice, notice any kind of difference from the medication and placebo, again, even at four times the standard dose. And this was a placebo trial, right? Yep. So given that we have a potentially negative trial with newer data of an agent, Dr. Angela, would you foresee the FDA reevaluating the role of phenylephrine as an agent that would be a decongestant for patients? I'm not sure, but I would hope that they start looking more into this data as they're doing their OTC drug reviews. I know that process has been underway for many years as they're looking at the different products on the market and the safety and efficacy behind them. And so this is one product I would encourage uh, groups to look at more closely since we do have a better product available. It's just harder to get. 
And, you know, in thinking about systemic versus topical therapies, at least for me, when I'm a patient, one of the things that I personally consider is the adverse effect profile of the systemic therapy versus the topical therapy. So some of the adverse effects like tachycardia, uh, insomnia, jitteriness, dry mouth, headache, feeling nauseous, um, or even, not for me, but if I were to be a little bit older, some prostate-type symptoms of difficulty urinating. You know, all of these are fairly common side effects that we can see um, even among younger people who take, you know, these systemic decongestants. So for someone who doesn't want to experience some of these side effects, they can take a topical agent that has a much lower incidence of some of these problems. And these topical agents can be available in form of um, sprays, drops, or inhalers. Uh, we see a variety of products formulized using uh, different formulation, uh, talking about phenylephrine, um, nefazolin, oxymetazolin, um, xylometazolin, and the love methamphetamine. And the longest acting agent of those is the oxymetazoline. But, you know, many of these agents are available over the counter that can be used. So looking at price and frequency of administration and things like that would be a consideration. And there are a couple of things to be careful of with these medications. A child, even if they ingest even a small amount of one of these alpha-1 agonists, it could be life-threatening, some serious adverse effects. And even beyond children, there's the idea, albeit maybe somewhat controversial idea, about rebound congestion, which is also called one of my favorite terms in pharmacy to say just rolls off the tongue, rhinitis medicamentosa. It's something that, that rebound congestion that could occur after three to five days of therapy, potentially. Although um, some studies may not have not always shown it to have occurred, but in, in general, there's, there's the recommendation to not use for further than those three to five days. And on the packaging, it actually does say this, that longer than three days is not recommended because of this rebound congestion. Just know that it is controversial. Yep, and then similar product is used for red eye relief uh, treatment as well. We're not talking about eye products here, but it's also known to cause rebound redness of the eye. So you're using the product to get rid of it, but if you overuse it, the red eye comes back. And I think that's an important counseling point, and so that's why we need to remember side effects and all the issues with these agents. So when we're talking to our patients, let them know that this could happen. And so they've been warned, and they know to stop use around three days to five days for these reasons. And then just to reiterate some of those side effects, patients with enlarged prostate, high blood pressure, closed angle glaucoma, and diabetes should avoid using these products. I remember working over the counter, uh, working in a pharmacy, excuse me, there were some of these over the counter products that were, you know, supposedly, you know, safe for blood pressure, high blood pressure individuals. And a lot of times they were just anti, antihistamines in that case. And I also know that I've had some patients of mine that with BPH and there's, you know, the concern about changes in urine flow and a lot of, we'd have to do a kind of a root cause analysis, find out it was uh, the, the pseudoephedrine that he had been taking recently for some of the, his uh, congestion symptoms. And once he stopped taking that, his urine uh, flow was able to, to dec um, come back again. And so he's feeling a lot better. And keep in mind, too, that, you know, the topical agents do have this warning about their side effect profile, but this is minuscule compared to the systemic therapy that we're giving the patient. You know, it's very common with many topical agents, whether it be an eye drop or some nasal spray, that because of the drug property itself that we carry some of these warnings with them. But you have to think about the absorption of the product and the amount of product that could potentially get in the bloodstream and things like that. Almost always it's a lot less than what you would get from a systemic product. I think because of that, we have to be careful that patients don't use both. Uh, they might not realize they are both decongestants and in the same class, and so they may take one product, realize, well, that's not doing the job that I wanted it to do, so I'm going to go take something else. And now they're over-treating, and they might run the risk of increased systemic absorption. 
You will see perhaps physicians uh, prescribing this for patients. I've seen that, especially um, when patients are highly congested and going on long trips um, in an airplane, but that's not something as pharmacists we would recommend for over-the-counter use. And just to you know, cover all of our bases, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding generally should not use decongestants. Um, pregnant women can sometimes have uh, the topical decongestant like oxymetazoline because it does have a low systemic absorption. But really, this isn't under the purview of the pharmacist. This should be in conversation with the, the OB for the patient. Um, for the perceived risk of decreased blood flow, because again, this is something that is vasoconstricting and we don't want to vasoconstrict blood to the fetus, that would be the perceived risk. Yep, and simple um, non-medicated saline nasal spray could be um, good enough in a like a mild form of decongestion. So moving on uh, away from decongestants, kind of in a related field is the symptom of runny nose, focusing mostly on runny nose caused by allergies, but there's you know runny nose that can be caused by the cold and a number of other etiologies as well. As we talk about some of the causes, allergens are obviously um, a key part of this when we talk about uh, response to uh, histamine and our allergic response. And so we need to consider both indoor and or outdoor allergens. Patients may be allergic to both or one or the other. And so we think of pet nander, pollen, dust mites, mold spores, cockroaches. There's a really neat website, pollen.com is one that I use um, regularly. And this is how you can check pollen counts in your area. If they're high and you're allergic to pollen, Stay indoors if you're able to. And of course, other things like uh, pollution, ozone, diesel fuels, things like that can sometimes trigger an allergic reaction. Um, using a HEPA filter can help. This obviously would be for indoor use only. And then there's a number of nasal rinses and wetting agents and things like that that can sometimes be used mostly for symptomatic relief. And this includes things like saline nasal rinses, a neti pot, uh, things like that. Generally, these are going to relieve dry mucosa in the nose that can sometimes happen and also help with some of the irritation from that dryness. It should help with some of the stuffiness, the rhinorrhea, the sneezing. But one important counseling point, regardless of this, is you either you know are going to get your saline solution in a bottle that has been prepared in a clean environment, or if you're going to use something like a neti pot, it's very important that you're using distilled or boiled water. There's case reports in Louisiana of uh, patients getting infections in their nose because of contamination in the water that causes brain lesions. So using clean water is very important. Like those brain-eating amoebas that I've heard of. Yes. Terrified of Cryptosporidium and things like that. Not, not something to mess with. Yeah, just keep in mind that you're shooting this water that could potentially have bacteria in it right where your brain is very close to. So and it's probably a good idea to use clean water for that. So we are always looking at patients off the bed. Should, should not be recommended these self-care um, medications for treatment of allergy or allergic rhinitis. And so we are excluding patients, or pediatric patients less than 12 years of age. Again, this limitation is a little bit higher than the less than four years that we talked about common and, cough and cold products. And the reason they added uh, the limit of 12 for treating allergic rhinitis is to make sure we rule out asthma. And so as long as the patient is seen or the child is seen um, and asthma is not the cause of what's going on here, then we can proceed with um, treatment of allergic rhinitis. Pregnant or lactating females uh, should not be using these treatment either. Again, non-farm treatments are still okay. Um, symptoms of um, non-allergic rhinitis, so things like um, the patients don't have any sneezing, their um, symptoms are constant, so they're not triggered by any pollutants or any kind of triggers. Nasal obstruction is present, such as polyps. 
If their nasal secretions are either very watery or too thick or mucopurulent, so again, um, signs of infection, if they have recurrent nosebleeds. Um, they've got nasal polyps that they know of. They are diagnosed with deviated septums or they have enlarged tonsils. These are all cases for the ENT doctors, so they should always almost be referred. Um, sometimes if they can present with symptoms of otitis media, sinusitis, bronchitis, or other infections, again, if you're leaning toward a suspicion of this is an infectious-based um, uh, symptoms, uh, then they should also be referred. And again, uh, patients who have symptoms of undiagnosed or uncontrolled asthma or they're complaining of symptoms that are more lower respiratory based, we're worried about, again, some sort of infection here. So those patients should also be referred. All right, so if we do decide that it, it's warranted to use one of these medications, as far as things we got, I think one of the first ones is our intranasal corticosteroids. And these are great things. They can work for the runny nose, for the sneezing, for the congestion, itchy nose, if the palate itches due to allergies, maybe even with some of the itchy, watery eyes. And the thing about them is you can even get away with using them uh, once a day, for example, one to two sprays in each nostril. That depends really on your age and on your severity symptoms. So if, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's even that couple catchy little jingles you can use to really convey the message here. Um, let me try this. Uh, how about... Shake it every time you take it. Not bad. Anyone else? When you spray your nose, look at your toes. And how about shake and prime if it's been a long time? All right, that sounds great. So in other words, you have to shake the medication. If it's been a long time, you should prime the medication, which means that you're spraying into the air. And when you're actually administering the medication, you should look down. Look at your toes when you're actually spraying it. And along with administration techniques, because this medication can potentially cause nosebleeds and irritation, there's something called contralateral hand technique, which is something we would tell patients to do. And essentially, if they're spraying into their right nostril, they would use their left hand. If they're spraying into their left nostril, they would use their right hand, and that keeps the spray away from the septum. Just to kind of quickly go over the agents, there's really there's three main ones that can be used, tramcinolone or nasocort, fluticasone, Flonase or Bunesonide, Rhinocor, they all kind of have a similar efficacy. And really the differences there come down to either cost or patient's pre patient preference. There's even some little uh, different uh, smells associated with them. Fluticasone may smell more like roses and has a little alcohol, and so that one can, can sting a little bit, for example. And then there's maybe an age limitation that differs between the three different agents. You may want to be aware of that. So, you know, all of these products have warning regarding slowing growth in children. You know, this is also a very common issue in the use of inhaled corticosteroids with patients with asthma, as most asthmatics are diagnosed as children. Obviously, they have to grow, and when they grow and they're receiving corticosteroids, we worry about their growth rate. So it's a controversial topic, at least in the asthma community, and I'm sure it is as well uh, with the nasal corticosteroids. So this is one that would be important to limit use to short term. If a child is experiencing allergies and you um, are finding you want to use these products long term, make sure you do have the pediatrician involved. And for any patient, it's important that they're under the understanding that they're at a high risk for infection because this is a steroid that they're applying in their nose. Uh, vision changes, glaucoma, cataracts, all of these are potential side effects. But as you said, Dr. Angelo, minimizing the duration of use is important to minimize the risk of these more chronic side effects. And then some of the other ones that are more common, um, we mentioned nosebleeds already, but headache, burning, or irritation it can cause runny nose, uh, sore throat, and sometimes a bit of a cough. It gets back into the throat. So 
if we're moving away from the topical agents and we want something more systemic, let's say it's not just a runny nose, but more allergies in general, what are some of the options that we have more for systemic therapy? So we should kind of go with the second generation antihistamine. Um, some of the examples will be loratadine uh, or claritine, or uh, another one is your Zyrtec, the generic is cetirizine. Um, here the idea is to try and avoid the first generation. So we kind of covered how first-generation antihistamine can have a little bit more CNS depressing uh, effects, such as they can be also drowsy and more dizzy-ness-producing um, as well. And when you say first-generation antihistamine, you're talking about like a diphenhydramine or a Benadryl, which is what you're saying we're avoiding those to avoid some of the side effects associated with that current yeah. class. Correct. Yeah, those are not first line to treat allergies. The mm -hmm. preference is to use our second generation antihistamines. And don't forget fexofenadine, which is Allegra. Mm -hmm. So we do have three available over the counter. And with these, even though there's um, there's not a huge risk of drowsiness, interestingly, of the three cetirazines, kind of considered, at least my understanding is it's the more sedating of the non-sedating. And part of that's kind of interesting is the metabolite of hydroxyzine, which is one of the first generation ones which we use more to, to address anxiety. So, um, but yeah, so that one kind of has a little bit of an issue with sedation. The other two, not so much. But you can also still have headache and fatigue as a side effect of kind of all three of those. The nice thing about them is some versatility in terms of dosing, whereas with diphenhydramine or some of the other medications you're talking, maybe every six to eight hours, here the usual dosing is once a day. So how is it that we have diphenhydramine that works on the uh, histamine receptor that does produce sedation, but then we have these three other agents that tend to not be sedating? What is different about these second-generation antihistamines versus our first-generation antihistamines? A lot of it comes down to the, the CNS penetration, so whether or not they can cross the blood-brain barrier into the central nervous system. And so, again, just, uh, just as I mentioned, something like hydroxyzine or even diphenhydramine can be used for anxiety because they cross to the brain. These other medications don't have as much of penetration. You may see a little bit with cetirazine, and thus why it may have some more sedating effect. The others do not, and thus they're not really used for anxiety. They're not really used for sleep, but they still can have a role peripherally in getting rid of some of that rhinorrhea and some of that other um, nasal secretions. So would we expect the efficacy in terms of allergy symptoms to be similar between our first and second generation antihistamines? Yeah, and again, because the main thing we're looking there is some of our, our peripheral secretion, that, that part of it's not really going to be affected by it. Where we do see a little bit of data is comparing cetirazine to loratadine and vexofenadine, and there is some thought that cetirazine has a bit more efficacy and it might do to crossing that blood-brain barrier. Um, but I would say when we look at this from a clinical perspective, it's probably not that big of a deal. I think patients need to pick what they prefer, what works for them. If one doesn't work, try another. I think the counseling points around these is if you do recommend cetirazine, note that about 10% of patients will probably experience drowsiness. This product will last 24 hours, so if you do have a patient who has the drowsiness or sedative effects from cetirazine, unfortunately it'll take 24 hours for that to wear off. Whereas when you look at the packaging of loratadine and fexofenadine, those specifically state non-drowsy. Cetirazine does not state that and in fact calls out, calls out drowsiness as a possible side effect. So uh, like in a lot of places, one of the things we also need to consider is some, some interactions with, with diet, dietary, herbal, or other medications. So, for example, fexofenadine, you have to be careful of taking with fruit juice because that can actually decrease the absorption of the medication, see less of an effect. So, Dr. Schumann, you said fruit juice, not grapefruit juice, and you said it decreases absorption, not increases. And typically, right. when we think of statins, we think of 
grapefruit juice increasing absorption, but you said the opposite. Right, this isn't really due to any kind of uh, gastrointestinal or liver enzyme system. What it's due to is the, is uh, this OP or some of these uh, different kinds of transporters, and by effect, uh, by interacting with these transporters, just less of the drug is absorbed and less is available to the body. So apple juice, grapefruit juice, orange juice, all of these are things that we should not take our effects affinity in with because it will make it not work as well. Yep. Interesting. And you still have to watch out for those who have renal impairment or renal insufficiency that um, all three agents need to be renally adjusted. And when it comes to cetirizine and loratadine, uh, hepatic dose adjustment is also needed. And then we focus a lot on the central versus peripheral, you know, H1 receptor blocking effect, but uh, these agents have a little bit of inhibition of mast cell as well. So it inhibits the release of mast cell mediators. Um, and that kind of leads us into the next category of agent, which is a topical mast cell stabilizer. The only product that's available is the chromaline sodium. It's a nasal spray. And you might be familiar with chromalin as an agent that is prescription that is an inhaled product for asthma very uncommonly used, but uh, this, of course, is an OTC product as a nasal spray, but it works in the same mechanism to stabilize those mast cells from releasing histamine. I think the one caveat with this is the um, fact that you need to start using it before the symptoms begin. So it's recommended typically one to two weeks before your allergen exposure um, is when you would start using this. And I would say the other hang-up um, that patients might have is it's used three to six times per day, which could be a bit um, when we compare that to an inhaled nasal corticosteroid, which is used once per day. The one nice thing about it, just in kind of contrast, is that it's approved for patients ages two or older. Again, similar to where we talk about it with asthma, is that it's one that's kind of more pediatric friendly. And if you want to educate the patient how fast it's going to start taking the effect, like Dr. Angelo said, you know, it needs to be used before the symptoms start. So if they're using it, it takes about three to seven days for the the effect to come in appearance. Um, and then... Um, they're saying about use of uh, two to four weeks of continued therapy is needed to see some clinical benefit. And we do see some adverse effects. So sneezing is actually more common with this, even though sneezing is often one of the symptoms that we worry about with uh, allergic rhinitis. Uh, nasal stinging and burning, which is somewhat common with any anything you spray up your nose, is something that we could consider as well. Kind of um, as a side note, from my perspective, you know, we have a once daily intranasal spray that is a corticosteroid available. We have a once daily oral tablet antihistamine, even some of which are non-sedating. And then we have chromalin, which is given three to six times per day that you have to take for three to seven days to even begin to see a benefit. From my perspective, I have a really hard time unless you're very afraid of the potential for reduced adult height among pediatric patients, or if you are very sensitive to the systemic antihistamines in terms of a sedating property, I see very little role for this in the arena of, uh, you know, any allergy-type symptoms. And I think um, when we look at the literature, the two populations that we may see this being used would be those who are pregnant and those who are breastfeeding um, because it is a, a safe agent, and so sometimes that is considered the drug of choice depending on the um, obstetrician's uh, preference. So as, as always in, in pregnancy, for example, you want to make sure to rule out um, other causes of it. So in this case, pregnancy-related non-allergic rhinitis that may occur. And then again, we also want to work with primary care provider just to, so that everyone's on board about the number of medications. But Dr. Angela, you're exactly right that in that kind of case, then if the PCP is okay with it, then the first line for those who are pregnant is going to be chromaline sodium. If they must go ahead and use once 
daily antihistamine, then chlorpheniramine is the first-line agent uh, versus the uh, loratadine or cetirizine we talked about. Yeah, just, I think there's not a lot of data on, on using these agents in pregnancies, so uh, we may still see some of these old drugs in this list as recommended because we have more data on them. And then just to clarify, chlorpheniramine is another one of those more sedating first-generation antihistamines, I believe. You can get that in a short-acting formation, so you can uh, get a product that's only four hours, which might be good if you are helping a pregnant patient. And it turns out that pregnant women with allergic rhinitis aren't lining up to engage in clinical studies. So it's unlikely that we're going to see a lot of new data, which is why sometimes we see some of these older products being recommended as a first-line agent simply due to a lack of data, not because of lack of safety or efficacy with our newer agents. Well, is there any information, anyone, on the use of some of those uh, corticosteroid nasal sprays? So we do know that um, orally taken triamcinolone can cause cleft palate in our you know, developing fetus. So they're saying if you're comparing all the available corticosteroid um, nasal sprays, fluticasone propionate has the most data available um, because we know that the systemic absorption is minimal um, and it's limited to just the intranasal use. In terms of, you know, lactation, again, chromalin would be kind of the drug of choice just based on minimal adverse effect profile to the baby. Generally, antihistamines are not preferred because of adverse effects to the infant. Um, it also reduces breast milk production. So, you know, if a lactating patient must have an antihistamine, they can, of course, uh, take a dose, uh, preferably the shortest acting agent that they're comfortable taking, preferably at the end of the day, um, if they're not continuously breastfeeding, that it would be kind of at the end of the day after the baby is asleep and doesn't plan to feed overnight. And generally, we try to avoid the first generation antihistamines if possible because of their sedating effects. Um, so loratadine or fexafinidine would be kind of not preferred, but among the antihistamines, the preferred therapy to choose. And then regarding the, the nasal corticosteroids, we, we do know that they, they can pass through into breast milk, but the adverse event, event data in infants is not reported up to this point. And I think for children, we talked about referring them less than 12 initially to make sure it's not asthma, but we do have some great products for children um, to treat um, even down to the age of two. So loratadine is approved for that age group. Um, we also have uh, the inhaled nasal corticosteroids we talked about available uh, down to the age of two. It depends on the product, so you definitely want to check package labeling before making a recommendation. And when it comes to our elderly patient, the um, drug of choice um, should be the ratadine, something non, non-drowsy, non-sedating, or chromaline sodium, which we know it's cumbersome to use, so it's almost going to end up being a loratadine as a recommendation. Yeah, you'll definitely see the first generation and his means on the beers criteria, yes. so we'll avoid those, but those second generations might be worth a shot. So, you know, many patients often seek complementary and alternative medicine therapy for cough and cold and congestion and things like that. What are some of the agents that are available that actually have some data or are popular that have no data that our patients might be approaching us with? The one I always shake my head at is zinc. Uh, we see a lot of patients using zinc for uh, uh, hopefully treating their cold symptoms or preventing cold symptoms if they think a cold's coming on. I don't know if some of you might remember this, but the uh, Zycam nasal swabs that were on the market several years ago uh, then all of a sudden disappeared. Well, what was happening, um, there was a link between these zinc nasal swabs and uh, permanent loss of, of smell or the ability to smell. And so the company removed those. And then lo and behold, a month or two ago, or maybe a little bit longer, uh, they're back on the shelves. 
And so looking into, well, what's going on with these? Uh, looks like it's a homeopathic agent that they've converted the product over to. And I'm sure they've done safety studies on this homeopathic product, making sure that there's no uh, further side effects of the anosomia, which is the, the permanent loss of smell. Be great if they did. But they didn't. So what we have right now is if you look at the packaging, they claim a 45% reduction in symptoms. And being the evidence-based medicine person that I am, I actually contacted the company that produces Zycam and asked them what the data was for that claim. So for the Zycam cold remedy nasal spray, they said that the publication of a clinical trial is ongoing, but the study results are proprietary. Uh Um, For the Zycam rapid melts, they said that they had unpublished data with no plans to publish. And the Zycam allergy relief spray, um, they did provide a citation for me. And this was actually in the well-known, reputable journal of the Internet Journal of Family Practice, which was Volume 1, Issue 1, and included 32 patients, which was one of the largest Zycam trials that we have, which is excellent. So I would say that to have that claim bothers me a lot as a pharmacist, knowing that A, it's a homeopathic product, which we had already discussed in a previous episode, but then B, uh, to make that claim with this level of data that is quote-unquote proprietary or secret in some way, I don't think is supportive of the, the fact that this does or doesn't work. So then I'm pretty sure that the high-dose vitamin C got pretty solid data for us to refer. Well, the the nice thing about it is that we do have more data than we have with with our our zinc or our Zycam products. So with vitamin C, they, uh, again, consider high-dose, usually around 2 grams or more a day. And there was a really nice review, uh, Cochrane Database looked in 2013, and they looked at 29 different trials, and they analyzed them. And the end result, they said it's not beneficial for, for prevention in healthy individuals. They did note that the few studies that did show benefit were in some interesting populations. They were either very small studies or highly specialized populations. Marathon runners, they looked at ski schools in the Alps, they looked at soldiers literally on sub-arctic exercises, for example, and they did find some benefit in prevention of cold symptoms in those populations. But again, in the average populations that are more likely to be the consumers of these, especially in the general American market, no benefit. And furthermore, they noticed a risk of kidney stones in men with regular use. So next time I'm out skiing in the Alps, should probably bring this along. Yeah, again, if you're if that's if that's your thing and you're a high intensity athlete, which I am not, but if you are wonderful, then then that may work. And you might want to take some Imodium with you too, because high doses of vitamin C can um, easily cause diarrhea as well. So that's delightful. <laughs> what about kidney stones? Is that a possibility? I remember hearing about that some time ago. Yeah, again, that, that can be potentially something that if, if it is with a regular routine use. So then the other interesting thing is we can also look at, at the, the data as it relates to duration of cold. Uh, there part of that 2013 Cochrane review, they looked at 17 trials in adults and 14 in children. And what they did find is that there was a reduced cold duration in adults, but only if you took these tablets all year long. And of course, the actual magnitude of benefit was not very impressive at all. So among adults who did have a cold, regular supplementation of vitamin C decreased the cold duration by 8%, which means that if your cold was 3 days in duration, it turned out to be 2.76 days in duration, and then 14% in children. But again, this is if you're taking vitamin C all day long for the entire year with the anticipation of having a cold come at some point. And it's interesting to note that most studies used at least a gram a day, if not more, for these kind of preventative cold studies. 
Interestingly, within the Cochrane Review, they had one of the dumbest statements that you can have in a meta-analysis, which is that overall the results were negative, but they said, quote, it may be worthwhile for common cold patients to test on an individual basis whether therapeutic vitamin C is beneficial for them. The entire point of doing an evidence-based medicine randomized controlled trial is to determine whether a given therapy is effective or not. A single patient taking a single medication isn't going to have a control group to know whether a medication is effective or not. They're going to have confirmation bias if their cold does improve quicker than normal, uh, even if the vitamin C had no role in that. Despite Cochrane Review having uh, generally very good, you know, evidence-based reviews, this conclusion just baffles me that they put that in there. So it's basically saying spend the money if they want to. Exactly. There is one other uh, supplement that I know is very common. It's called Airborne. Um, this is a combination of vitamins and herbs. I know this is a very common product. When I was in high school and early college, I took it. Um, what, what is the evidence for Airborne? I know it was produced by a, a teacher or a high school teacher or something like that. And when this first came out, it uh, got a lot of attention, but I think the, the few studies that we have around this really haven't shown this to be an efficacious product. So again, it's patients spending money, um, but really without any benefit. So Dr. Angela, what you're saying is that patients should try this on an individual basis to see whether therapeutic airborne is beneficial for them or not. Not my words. However, <laughs> if we want to support, uh, uh, I guess, the product market, we could recommend they do that. Mm -hmm. And this is honestly a, a fairly common theme among these, you know, complementary and alternative medicine therapies is that we generally don't have a wealth of data because there's no requirement by the FDA that they run a safety and an efficacy study for these herbal-based products or homeopathic-based products. You often wonder if it's simply a placebo effect when patients do come back and tell you, hey, this worked great. Mm -hmm. You really don't have the data to support that other than anecdotal reports. And that usually drives the market, you know. Absolutely. I, I have a friend who's uh, flying long distance and scared of getting infection on a closed space, and they're getting airborne, and that's where the name drives too, right? If you're getting airborne, take airborne so you don't get sick, but there's little to no benefit of taking that. And this really reminds me of the oscillococcinum for flu that we talked about in episode 40 of Helix Talk. This is a homeopathic product to prevent the flu when you begin to feel the onset of flu taking hold. And again, basically no data. It's, uh, extract, it's an extract of goose heart and liver, and uh, it's 200C, so there's almost no product left in the bottle that you're actually taking. But despite that, it has a five-star review on Amazon with more than 800 reviews. So the power of this anecdotal evidence is a real thing in the market, uh, which is one of the reasons why sales of some of these products are really driven not by evidence, but based on anecdotal reports. So just uh, as a brief review, um, looking at Sudafed PE versus Sudafed, uh, what can you tell us, Dr. Angelo, as kind of good take-home points about the comparison of those two products? Sure. As we break down the active ingredients, Sudafed is pseudoephedrine, and Sudafed PE is the phenylephrine product that came about when pseudoephedrine was put behind the shelves due to the methamphetamine issues. And when we look at those two products, I think it's important to consider the efficacy. Um, the data tells us that pseudoephedrine is far more efficacious than phenylephrine, but it is harder to get. So as pharmacists, we definitely want want to encourage our patients to come see us in the pharmacy, show us their ID, do the paperwork or whatever we need to do to log the sales and make sure they are getting a product that works for them. 
So, and what I want to focus on is looking at some of the antihistamines. As we mentioned, there are both the first generation, which are the generally sedating antihistamines. They cross the blood-brain barrier. That's going to be your chlorpheniramine, your diphenhydramine, your hydroxyzine. Then our second generation are ones that we generally consider to be non-sedating or not caught across the blood-brain barrier. Within them are fexofenadine, loratadine, and cetirizine. And cetirizine is actually the metabolite of one of those sedating ones, uh, hydroxine, so therefore it actually can cross the blood-brain barrier slightly, so you may actually get some sedating effect from that medication. It's one important counseling point to note. The nice thing about them, though, is they can each be taken once a day for, our, for symptoms. And my take-home point relates to the nasal corticosteroids. One of the adverse effects that patients should definitely know about is the risk of nosebleeds with these agents. And one way to kind of reduce the risk is the contralateral technique where you're using your left hand to spray your right nostril and vice versa. Um, although there's still a risk of nosebleed, I think it's important that patients know the technique and also know that the adverse effect exists. And the take-home point I would like to cover is that try not to recommend any of these products such as zinc, a high-dose vitamin C, or airborne because we don't have good evidence available uh, for their use in common cold and allergies. So with that, uh, if you haven't done so already, check us out at helixtalk.com. We're also on Twitter at helixtalk where you can get uh, new episode alerts and other things relevant to the podcast. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. I'm Dr. Patel. And I'm the guest, Dr. Angelo. Thank you once again, Dr. Angelo, for joining us. And with that, I'm going to say study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.